Okay, good evening, good people. All right. Friends, uh, I'm not sure, I mean, I've, I feel like I start every talk here with the, the following disclaimer, and that is that I, I realize that not many of you are sporting fans. And, and this is a great weekend, by the way, to not be a sporting fan. Those of you who are sporting fans would know what I'm talking about. But when I grew up, there was one cricketer that I wanted to be. And his name was Gary Kirsten. Some of the, the elder folks might know who this is. He was this short left-handed batsman. And I just wanted to be a batsman like Gary Kirsten. The only problem was I was right-handed, okay? But that didn't stop me. So when we played backyard cricket, I would just bat left-handed. And it annoyed my dad immensely because I'm right-handed. But I tried to imitate Gary Kirsten. I mean, I failed miserably at that. And, you know, my, my cricketing career was short-lived. But the fact of the matter is that I looked at someone and I just wanted to be like him. And this is true for most young people growing up these days, you know, that they would look at other sporting heroes, maybe they would look at celebrities, unfortunately, often to, to imitate. I, I know something that I find fa interesting is a couple of years ago, well, actually, they, they asked this question annually to students at this one, at this one school, what they wanna be, and you can sort of track what kids want to be year after year after year. And it's something like 30%, an increasing amount of people want to be famous one day, okay? Not an astronaut, not a policeman, not a doctor, famous. What do you want to be famous for? No, no, just famous. Anyways, you, you can make of that what you want. The fact of the matter is we imitate things. And it was easier for me to try and imitate a cricketer in the form of Gary Kirsten than to just go to a textbook and read about what is the best way to play a particular shot or how, the best way to bowl a particular delivery. We see someone do it and we imitate that. Now, the reason I mention this is because I think it's true in the spiritual life as well. It can sometimes come across a little bit abstract when we read scripture and we are told that we need to be more like Jesus, and we are told that we need to imitate him, and that's wonderful, and we must always go back in scripture and delve and try and transform ourselves into his image, undoubtedly. But it can sometimes be a little bit difficult to access that. And like Paul says, follow me as I follow Jesus. It just becomes a little bit more accessible to follow someone, to look at someone, to imitate someone who's following Jesus. And that's what we're going to do over the course of the next few weeks. We're going to look at what I want to call modern-day saints. It's something that we don't do in the evangelical tradition. We are very scared of putting any human on a pedestal, and I guess that comes from a good biblical place, but we've gone off on the other side. In the Catholic tradition and the Eastern Orthodox tradition, even the Anglican tradition, they are very open about saints and the fact that we can learn from people who really lived amazing lives spiritually. And the person that we're going to look at today is a guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, it's 1945, just after the end of the, the Second World War, and there's a memorial on the BBC, on the radio program. And it's a very unpopular memorial, 
because they are celebrating the life of a German. And many British people phoned in and said, didn't enough English people die that we can commemorate them, that we can celebrate them? Why are we spending precious airwaves on a German? The German in question was none other than Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So who was Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was part of a family of eight. I'm struggling with, with two. I should say my second one is actually not a human yet. So I'm struggling with one and a half. But they were eight um, children in the Bonhoeffer family. And you have to look very carefully, but Dietrich is sporting a horrible, horrible ha uh, haircut just behind his sister there. I mean, we talk about the Nazis being criminal, but that haircut was criminal as well, and I think child abuse, but that's a different sermon for a different day. He was part of this family, and it was a very vibrant family, and uh, a family where they discussed and debated ideas. Karl Bonhoeffer, who's standing there with his wife on the side, was a very famous neurologist, a very famous psychiatrist. As a matter of fact, at that time, the most famous psychiatrist in the world. You, you can look at most of the most famous thing, uh, professions in the world during that time, and almost all of them would have come from Germany. It's quite fascinating, whether it's philosophy or theology or music or the hard sciences, all of them came from the Germans. And then from this brilliant society, from this very talented society, you had the most totalitarian regime that the world has probably ever seen. Again, a sermon for a different day. So Karl Bonhoeffer, he is a psychiatrist and he's got eight kids. Karl Bonhoeffer, however, is an agnostic. He's not a Christian, but he encourages everyone in his family to you know, pursue their own ideas and beliefs. So again, I think it was a very healthy way of, of growing up in the, the first part of the, the 20th century. The, the whole family actually was one of those families that I think are quite annoying. I wouldn't have liked them because everybody was just an overachiever. You had one became a famous chemist and ap apparently helped Einstein split the atom, which you know, is no small feat. And then there was another guy, Klaus Bonhoeffer, who was a famous uh, lawyer. And everybody just came with so much, so, so much pedigree. But at the age of 13, young Dietrich Bonhoeffer decided that he wants to become a theologian. This really annoyed his family. They weren't upset, but they tried to dissuade him from this career. They said, oh, come on, man, you're so talented. At that stage, he was a very talented pianist, very talented musician. Don't you want to do something else? But he's a very stubborn young chap. He says, no, I really want to become a theologian. And they say, but it's a, it's, it's a dead profession. And he says, well, I'll change it. And... He, he decides to pursue this, this life of theology, and he gains his PhD at the age of 21. To, at the age of 21, he's got a PhD, and a couple of years later, he gets his second PhD, I think before his 25th or 26th birthday. I, I know it's, it's, it's annoying. He had to get a second PhD because in Germany at that time, the only way that you were able to lecture in a university is if, if you have two, two PhDs, not just, not just one, the Germans, right? And during this time, he's already you know, committed to church and trying to teach Sunday school. And we've got this wonderful photo of him with his confirmation class where he's got his, his, these, these young boys that he invited to the estate where they where he was just fellowshipping with them and really taking the life of faith uh, seriously. And then, 
1930, he accepts a postdoc opportunity, that is to sort of further himself as an academic at Union Theological Seminary in New York. So he goes from Germany, takes the boat, and he goes to New York. And in New York, he writes a lot. He writes back and he says, the theology and the discussion in the church is so dull and boring. He really found it very, very stupid. And the reason being is that he said you had the liberals on the one side, you had these conservatives on the other side, and they were not talking to each other. They found their identity in being liberal and woke, although I'm sure the word didn't exist back then or didn't mean what it means today. And then you just had these stuck-up conservatives who's just trying to protect a past that never was. And he just find, found it very dull and boring. And he even said that these liberals must come to me so I can introduce them to proper liberals, like liberals in the German tradition who are, who are liberals that you can actually respect. And, and then the conservatives he just wanted to introduce to another famous theologian called Karl Barth because he was very annoyed at them and their culture wars that persist to this day in the States. And we unfortunately have inherited that, uh, that export of theirs. The one thing that he loved, however, in his time in New York, is he would sneak out from what he thought was were boring uh, theological lectures, and on Sundays, he would go to the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. Now, those of you who know anything about New York would know that Harlem is where the, the black people stayed, and to this day, I think it's got a majority black population. So he would go to the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, and there, he was blown away by the spirituality of these people. So every Sunday for a year, he would go and worship with these African-Americans. That's weird, friends. You've got a white German in 1930 worshiping with African-Americans Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And he was just completely mesmerized by their music and their spirituality. And this is a moment in the life of Bonhoeffer when he moves from a theologian who's clinical, who just loves to study and immerse himself in literature, to Bonhoeffer the churchman, who really falls in love with the life of, of faith. Eventually, he comes back. He teaches a little bit in, uh, at, at the University of Berlin, if I'm not mistaken. But then in 1933, something happens in Germany. Can anybody tell me what happened in 1933? There we go. Hitler comes to power. Hitler becomes chancellor of, of Germany. And, I mean, it was on the cards for a while, but, but now he's, he's in charge. And what does Bonhoeffer do? He delivers a radio address on leadership. And he says Hitler is a form of bad leadership. So what happens? His, his message is cut off you know, almost mid-sentence as he's talking about this is the worst possible form of leadership. And, uh, and, and from the very beginning, from, from the very beginning of Hitler's, the very night that he came to power, he becomes an enemy of Hitler, so to speak. So he, he we, we see there are lovely little anecdotes, and you can see the family that Bonhoeffer found himself in and how it formed the person that he would eventually become. He had a very stubborn grandmother. Most grandmoms are stubborn. But this 90-year-old lady apparently went to this grocery store where she also always shops. And now there were all of these SS policemen with their massive, um, you know, I don't know what, which guns they had, machine guns, uh, guarding the shop because they don't want anybody to support these, you know, pesky Jews. And this lady would go with her cane and slap the machine guns away. And she would say, I've always shopped here. I will still shop here. Get out of my way. So 
but, but there's a lot of pressure on these poor, uh, on, 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 on the Jews, and, and I think we know the rest of that story. And during this time, Dietrich becomes part of the Operation 7 movement. And in the Operation 7 movement, he was an instrumental part of, ironically, helping 14 Jews escape uh, Germany at that, at that stage. And something tragic happened, and that is that the church, to a large extent, towed the line of, of the Nazis. And here you can see Hitler and just this, this whole mob behind him, and these priests just sort of bowing to his, to his power, just shaking hands with the Fuhrer. And they basically had an understanding that we will keep out of the life of politics if you guys keep out of the life of faith. So it became a very private faith, and you know we'll do our thing, and you can do your thing. And even the Pope got involved and wrote a couple of letters. That is a complex bit of history that we're not going to go into. But this is something that Bonhoeffer, who was a very committed Lutheran, uh, found very disturbing. And at that point, he decided that it's no longer possible for him to to be a leader in the Lutheran church in a public way, so he's going to have to go underground, and he's going to have to train seminarians, future pastors, underground. And that is sort of the birth of the confessional church, and he starts the seminary where they train young pastors. Let me just say a word about the Nazis and, and Christianity. If sometimes I've, I've seen people use it where they say Hitler was a Christian, and he's got these quotes on God, and... You know, he, he, he just talks about Jesus, and, 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 and it was actually a Christian movement that led to the anti-Semitism of Hitler. But that is just bollocks. So, for example, what theologians call bollocks. Um, the, the, if, if you wanted to become a member of the SS, then Himmler didn't allow you to be a Christian. You weren't allowed to, to be part of any worship community for obvious reasons, right? And then something else that I found interesting is that they had a whole plan, and two main men, Alfred Rosenberg and another guy called Martin Bormann, they were responsible for the faith of the Reich, how they're going to relate to faith going forward. And we've got the documents of what they planned. They wanted to take Germany back to the pagan Germanic gods. They wanted to serve Odin again. Because Christianity is very inconvenient if you're a guy like Hitler. Why? Because the, the, the guy who saved us is the suffering servant. That is not what Hitler's ideology was about. There's another other inconvenient fact, and that's that that guy was a Jew. All right? So the whole Old Testament is part of the story. So the, the Nazis were just, were just, you know, going with scissors to the Bible and cutting away everything that they didn't agree with. And you can imagine that there wasn't much left. And uh, so, so, so to, to say that, that Hitler, when he spoke about God, he meant that he was maybe talking about providence or fate or anything, but he was, his whole regime was very aware of the fact that the ideology of the church and the ideology of, of the Nazis are not things that are compatible at all. So he moves, this is now Bonhoeffer, and he starts a seminary in Finkenwalde. And I'm trying to pronounce these German words. Unfortunately, we've got Germans here who will uh, correct me. But there you can see Bonifer in the middle on the left. And he leads these young men into, uh, into the life of the seminary and to, to train them. And they didn't like him that much for a couple of good reasons. One is Bonhoeffer 
was a guy who really traveled and he saw a lot f and, and learned a lot from the, uh, you know, the African-Americans in New York. He also traveled to Rome and learned a lot from the, the Catholics. So, so these guys thought that they were just going to read, I don't know, fancy theology and talk a little bit about that, maybe a Bible study here, maybe a prayer there. But then Bonhoeffer just went full Christian on them. And they had to confess their sins daily to each other. They had to practice time in solitude. He just introduced these spiritual disciplines. And at that stage, to Lutheran seminarians, that was unheard of. So they called him the Pope in a derogatory way back then because he was just running the show with an iron, with an iron fist. But it is through the activities at Finkenwalde, at the seminary, that we have the book today called Life Together, which we are actually doing in our book club, where you reflected on what it means to live together in this, uh, this life of, of faith. Unfortunately, uh, he realized that, that soon problems were going to come, and the Gestapo will eventually find the seminary and close it down. And he spent a lot of time with, his, with these young men, teaching them that if you want to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you a lot. He spoke a lot about the cost of discipleship, and he tried to prepare them for the tumultuous years that was ahead, and he would reflect with his students on multiple passages. I'm going to look at a couple of, one of, a couple of these famous passages that they, would look, um, that they would look at. Before I get there, maybe let me just say something about this quote. This is from his book, The Cost of Discipleship, that he wrote in 1937. He says, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has God and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. This comes from deep reflection. This comes from a guy who realizes that this idea that that has unfortunately infiltrated a lot of i want to say protestant churches you know broadline evangelical churches uh, the idea that you know god already did everything on the cross and we're saved by grace all, everything is about grace 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 and it doesn't cost you anything this annoyed bonhoeffer he said that this cheapens the faith and we need to reflect on what it costs to follow Jesus. And he trained his, his uh, seminarians along these lines. He reflected on passages like this. This is from Luke 9, 57 to 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I want to move on five, 
chapters in Luke uh, 14, we read this. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 men to, to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. These are famous passages and what, what needs to happen with famous passages, especially in the churches, we always need to rescue them from familiarity. We've heard them way too many times for them to have any meaning. I've been in the church for a while now. I've been in ministry for a while now. And I've been to many evangelist services. There are many churches where they ask people after every service who wants to give their life to the Lord. I'm not against that. I think they're doing a fantastic job, and it's great when people make a commitment to God. But I do think that we've cheapened it just a little bit. It's just way too easy to give your life to God. And we've maybe glorified this moment in which you, you've given your life to God. And I say it in, you know, in quotations because sometimes uh, it's, it's, it's a very sentimental gift. But we do very little about the discipleship part and the cost of discipleship. What Jesus is doing here, you know, and, and churches would often, you know, I've been at this conference, how many people gave their lives uh, to Jesus at your last service? And please, if you want to give your life to Jesus, we can talk about that. But just notice that Jesus is trying to dissuade people to do it, not persuade them to do it. A couple of people, he's becoming very popular, and they are, he's, he's got a little entourage, and he turns around and he says, uh, I mean, this is verse 25, now a great crowd accompanied him, and he turned to say, and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Friends, we call that bad marketing, okay? So he's got this massive entourage. People are enjoying him. They are loving his message, and he turns to them and he says, you need to hate everyone if you want to be my disciple. Who's in? <laughs> we don't, I don't think we, we take what it means to live the, the, the life of Jesus. And I'm speaking for myself first and foremost, seriously enough. I think, especially in a place like South Africa, where we've got cultural Christianity. We sort of just go through the motions, right? If you, I can't speak for everyone, but if you grew up as an Afrikaner, it's assumed that you are a Christian, and we are all Christians, maybe with the exception when we lost to Japan in the World Cup. We are mostly Christian, and, and then it's, it's easy to just be lulled into this idea, yeah, yeah, God, that's great, yeah, yeah, Jesus, that's great, but it doesn't cost us anything. I've shared this before, but before 1990, there's this wonderful uh, you know, anecdote, but, but, but it's it comes from the, the seminaries in Eastern Europe. They would ask, they would be seminarians, they would be students, who, when did you come to faith? 
And if they said any number before 1990, they would immediately accept that person into the seminary. If they said 1992 or 1995 or 1998 or whatever, they would have a follow-up interview with them. Why? Because if you claim to be a Christian before 1990, there was no advantage into claiming to be a Christian. If you were a Christian, you meant it. Now it's becoming a little bit more popular and you've got a lot of people claiming the title who are not really living the life. So we need to have follow-up questions. But before that, it wasn't necessary because it cost us something. I think we must be careful in this very Christianized society uh, to not just focus on you know, identifying with Jesus. We need to count the cost as well. He goes on and he talks about in the, in the Luke 9 passage, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man does not have a place to, to put his head. Now, that's a weird line. Jesus, I will follow you. And then he talks about foxes and their holes. What's going on? He's saying, if you follow me and you follow me well, chances are that a situation might, might present itself where you will not have a place to stay. It will, it will impact you materially if you follow me. This is maybe not where we are today, especially in this community, but is it possible for you to follow Jesus to live an ethical life, to not, you know, do the tendrepreneuring business thing or do something dodgy there, and it costs you materially because you're trying to follow Jesus. I think that's a way of, 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 of saying yes to Jesus. Foxes have holes, but the Son of Man does not have a place to lay his head. It's following Jesus when it costs you something. It costs you materially. Jesus say, it will happen. Later on in the series, we will look at guys like Bayer's Nodia. It cost him a hell of a lot. The dead must bury their own dead. <laughs> Did you guys pick up that bit? Please don't quote it when you're invited to a funeral. It's not a way to, to get out of funerals. But it is a startling and shocking line nonetheless. You know, I, <laughs> I know that uh, Daniel was doing something for Rosh Christie on the Christian and the family. And Christianity has always been connected with family values, and probably the biggest ministry in the in the states is a family called is, is a ministry called Focus on the Family. But I promise you, this is not the verse that they've got on the the front page of their website. You know, you must hate your father, you must hate your mother, you must renounce these things if you want to follow me. But let's just look at this: let the buried, let the dead bury their own dead. I mean, that, that, that is a harsh line of Jesus, and he talks about absolute allegiance. But a little bit of background is this. In those days, if you had to bury your, your parents, maybe our, our black brothers and sisters can relate more to this than, than whiteies. When we have a funeral, you know, we want to have that done in about three hours max. And uh, back in the day, in the Middle Eastern culture, it is something that happens over an extended period of time. But then if you were the eldest son of the family, for example, then your job was to put the father in a tomb, and then when his flesh is rotten away, you go and collect his bones, and you put it in a little ossuary, you put it in a little box. And that takes a year or more, that whole process. So this guy is asking for you know, a couple of years delay, and Jesus says, it's urgent. The cost of discipleship means that, that you will have to um, tragically say no to things that are very important to you. But do you want to follow me or not? Then there's 
the the whole line about if you do not hate your mother or father and this is not an excuse again for a you know uh, bipolar hormonal teenager who who hates his parents it's a hebraic way of saying that you need to love god more it's it's saying it in a very aggressive way and friends then there's that line about bearing your cross now i find it so funny how we use that line you know we all have our crosses to bear and you know, when I wash the dishes and somebody say, hey, what's going on? Oh, you know, I just have my cross to bear. I need to wash the dishes. In the first century, it wasn't a figure of speech to bear your cross. If you were walking with a cross, it meant one thing. You are going to die. You are going to die at the hands of the Roman Empire. So when Jesus invites people to come and die, <laughs> to bear their cross, it had a very literal meaning. Will you follow him or not? Two things that I find relatable is the analogy that we get in this, uh, this Luke 14 one, analogies, I should say. He talks about who, who starts by building a uh, building and then you know, he's got a massive foundation and maybe he goes up all the way and then he stops halfway. People will walk by that thing and mock this person who had these elaborate ideas and plans. And... It's so relatable because I live very close to Elardes Park where you've got this Share Max building. I'm not sure if any of you know about the Share Max building. This mall that's just standing there. Nobody's allowed to go in. It's not finished. It's multi-million rands and it's just this monument to corruption and people who didn't see something through. But something that I've, that, that's slightly more relatable is... If you're a kid growing up, you've got so much holiday and you're always trying to figure out what to do with your holiday. And I'm, I was one of those guys who decided at one point I wanted to start a chicken farm, all right? That sounded like a good idea. So I went into my parents' garage and I found all sorts of materials that I, did look, that I thought looked chicken-ish. <coughs> and um, I started to construct this massive shed for my chicken farming. Even had a logo designed by that. I mean, I spray painted something against the chicken shed. And I acquired chicks. And then I heard that you need to keep them warm in the winter. So I acquired all of this merchandise. And all of them died, except one. And that uh, chicken became a pet in the house. Not a very popular pet. We called him Huner. And the neighbors complained. And eventually, my, my, my gardener was happy to, to go home with him. But the... The, the fact of the matter is that if you, if you came to, if, 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 if you came to our house, and I pretty much I'm not sure if it's still there, but if you came years after my very short-lived venture in the, the poultry business, then somebody would say, "Oh, Erica, your garden looks lovely. What is that monstrosity there at the back?" And then she would say, "That is my." my youngest born uh, short-lived business venture and it became a monument to my lack of commitment and by the way if you if you walk in our backyard you will find many monuments to my lack of commitment things that i think oh we need to do this and you guys have your own versions of it it might be gym membership or or, or something along those lines the fact of the matter is that it's easy for us to to be very excited in the beginning. Yes, I'm going to follow Jesus. Yes, I'm giving my heart to God. Yes, we are, we are going full steam ahead. And then after a while, 
all of those lofty promises and all of those lofty commitments falls very flat. We need to ask ourselves, is that what we are doing? You know, I've got many people who are on fire for Jesus, and they, they come and they say, oh, no, I really want to really follow God, and you know what, it's, it's wonderful. And, and they've often asked me, can they share their testimony, because this happened this weekend. And, and maybe I'm a tad cynical, and if I am, then I have to repent of that. But often I say, let's talk in a week, let's talk in a month. I would love your testimony. It would be wonderful. Just give it some time. Let's do the discipleship thing first over an extended period of time. It's easy to just make this knee-jerk reaction to, to have a little bit of a foundation that you, that you throw to start this building. But if the building is not finished, then Jesus says that we've got very little to be excited about. You know what? I once saw a, a, a friend of mine. She was deciding whether she wanted to date this guy. He was a student in Pochestrum, a very likable guy, but he was a skeptic. And she decided that I need to go in and just make him a Christian, and, and then she can date him. And so she sent me in, and I, I spent time with this guy. And we spoke about some of the intellectual objections, but they weren't real intellectual objections. And at one point he said, Johan, I've read the Bible. I've been in church. I, I, I go with her to church every time she invites me. And I've realized this. If I say yes to this, it's going to change my whole life. And I really like my life as it is. If I say yes to this, it's going to change everything. And I'm not sure I want that. I walked away from that conversation smiling because that guy knew what he rejected. But I'm not always sure that we know what we accept. That guy knew exactly what he rejected. But I'm not sure that I always know what I, what I accept. I don't know the implications of this life. Friends, I'm not sure what it means, these passages, for our lives today. And I want us to spend some time to figure out what it is. I don't know how it is that you relate to Bonhoeffer and what speaks to you. But I know that somehow it has to cost us something. Somehow it needs to... We need to wrestle with the reality of following Jesus. And it cannot be the cheap versions that I'm seeing. It cannot be a chain email where you have to send this. Do not be ashamed of Jesus. Send this to 20 people if you're not ashamed. Or post this on Facebook if you're not ashamed of Jesus. I'm pretty sure it's not that. What it is, I cannot, I cannot tell you. What I can tell you is that uh, the seminary of Bonifer was discovered by the Gestapo. He was not allowed to teach anymore. He wasn't allowed to write anymore. And in 1939, he went back to the States. He got a position there to teach, and he escaped the hell of Nazi Germany. He was there for a couple of days, and he, he spoke to uh, actually a very famous theologian, Niebuhr, and he said, I made a, such a mistake to come here. I need to go back to Germany because... If I want to be part of the rebuilding process post the war, I need to suffer with my people during it. So he catches the very last boat from the States to, to Germany, to what would eventually become his, his death. He joins the German Secret Service and he becomes a double agent. He's part of the Abwehr, which, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is the resistance, the German resistance. And there he smuggles many Jews out of the country 
and eventually he realizes with uh, a couple of other people that the only way for us to, to stop this is we need to get rid of Hitler. We need to assassinate this guy. Not only do we need to assassinate him, but we need to have a sort of a parliament in place because the last thing that you want is for Joseph Goebbels to replace Hitler or for Hermann Göring to replace. So, 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 so he was part of a coup, effectively, that they tried to get rid of, of Hitler. Who of you have seen the movie Valkyrie? Some of you saw it. Tom Cruise plays this guy. One of the things that you won't see in that movie are the, the religious motivations of, of uh, the, Tom Cruise's character and the whole resistance. But I can assure you that the only resistance from within Germany, or let me not overstate it, the primary resistance from within Germany was from the church. There you had guys like uh, Martin Niemöller. There you had people like Sophie Scholl like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And these people were so committed to Jesus that they realized that they had to do something. And even the, I forget his name. I want to say Klaus because that's usually a, is it Klaus von Saffenberg? I I knew it's Klaus. That's always a good German guess, right? It's like Johan. And and, uh, Klaus von Saffenberg, a very committed Catholic, uh, eventually tried to assassinate Hitler. We can talk about the ethics of that. You know, in the in the in the Q and I'm not sure what the answer is, but I do know that I'm I'm very moved by you know when 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 there's a movie and there are Germans they're usually the bad guys, but the movie that we're going to watch on Friday shows that it's slightly more complex than that. I'm not sure whom of you have ever heard of the life of Sophie Scholl. Sophie Scholl, a contemporary of of Bonhoeffer. She was a young, very bright girl who studied theology and philosophy at the University of Munich and was part of this church resistance. The, the group was called the White Roses, and they mobilized themselves to oppose Hitler, spread a lot of pamphlets trying to tell people of what's really going on in Germany and to, to try and get people to stand up for their conscience. Eventually, she was discovered. And one of the, the, the scenes that I really like that we know happened in her life, is that they had these mock trials in Germany, and Hitler's judge was a guy called Roland Freisler. And basically, they would just invite people in, and he would just scold them as enemies of the people, as traitors. So they would basically just stand there, and he would tell them how horrible they are. And you had a couple of people listening, but it wasn't a trial, it was just you know, for show. And they would televise this as well. And Sophie Scholl was also in front of Roland Freisler in this mock trial. And then eventually he would throw rhetorical questions like, do you have anything to say for yourself? And then she says, yeah, not for myself, but for you. And that is that today I am on trial in this court, what you guys call a court. But I want to tell you that you need to ask yourself how you're going to stand before the judge of judges. How are you going to stand before God? And nobody ever dared say anything back to Roland Fleisler except this 20-year-old girl called Sophie Scholl. On Friday, we're going to look a little bit more into her life. The plan failed, and all of the uh, conspirators were, were, were found, and Bonhoeffer among them. He was thrown in Tegel prison, actually for a different offense. And then three weeks before Hitler eventually committed suicide, he personally ordered the execution of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So he was moved to a concentration camp in Floschenberg, 
and there he was executed. His plan failed. But something I find incredibly moving is what we know about his last days, his last day, as a matter of fact. So he, uh, we, we read the following on Boniface's last day. He's a couple of friends, some of them didn't get the death penalty, uh, some of them, but, but, but mo all of them political prisoners. They say the following about him. They say, he spoke to us in a manner which reached the heart of all. So he was doing a service just before he was about to be killed. Finding just the right words to express the spirit of our imprisonment and the thoughts and resolutions which it had brought. He had hardly finished his last prayer when the door opened and two evil-looking men in civilian clothes came and said, Prisoner Bonifer, get ready to come with us. Those words come with us. For all prisoners, they had come to mean one thing only, the scaffold. We bade him goodbye. He drew me aside. This is the end, he said. For me, the beginning of life. A couple of years later, we, find, we found a memoir of a Dr. Fischer Hulstrung, who was the doctor at Floschenburg. And he wrote in his diary just this person that he met called Pastor Bonhoeffer. And he didn't know that this guy was a famous theologian. He didn't know why he was killed or why he was imprisoned in the first place. But he wrote the following about, about Bonhoeffer. He says, On the morning of that day, between 5 and 6 o'clock, the prisoners among them, Admiral Canaris, General Oster, General Tuomas, were taken from their cells, and the verdict of the court-martial read out to them. Through the half-open door in one room of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer, before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. I want to just look at a quick depiction of his death in a movie called Agent of Grace. just wanted us to look at the execution scene or just prior to the execution scene. courage that brought us here. Prisoners trip.
This is the end. No. And this Gestapo agent comes to him and he says, you are, you are trembling, Pastor. And he says, I'm cold. And then he says, so this is the end. And Boniface says, no. This is the beginning of life. Friends, I, I don't know what this means to you guys today. don't know what it means for us to reflect on Jesus' command to follow him, the cost of discipleship. I'm not sure what reflecting on the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, how it speaks to each of us. But what I do want to allow now is just a couple of moments silent to try and listen to God. Figure out where it is that you have maybe been lulled into a false cultural Christianity where you are just going with the stream. Maybe there's something... And I'm sure there are many things where that we can identify, that we can follow Jesus, that it's really going to cost us something. Let's spend a few seconds in silence and then I will pray for us. Lord Jesus, we are moved by the wonderful gift of the cross that you gave us. The amazing grace that you've given us. And we have to admit that we often cheapen it. That we, it costs us so little trying to follow you. Lord Jesus, I pray that we can be convicted again, that it cost you everything, and it will cost us everything if we do this and we do this right. Lord, it is our prayer this evening that we can again commit our entire lives, our relationships, our grudges, our bad habits, our finances, our time. We want to give it to you, dedicate it to you, and remind ourselves that ultimately it all belongs to you. Lord Jesus, we pray that we can live brave lives. We pray that we can be shaped more into your likeness. We're not living under a totalitarian state but there are so many ways in which we compromise on a on a daily basis so many ways in which we we are not following you help us realize to help us lord to 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 count the cost to realize what the cost is and to give it up help us to to follow you lord as you went to the cross 
May that be help melted into our hearts. Lord, we also thank you for the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Sophie Scholl, and so many others who were brave in their following of you. I pray, Lord, that we will be inspired by their, by their example. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross for us so that we can live. Help us to live within that amazing reality, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.